So today we're going in a slightly different direction. We're speaking to Dr. Mita Sugimoto, who brings products in from around the world into the Asian market. And she's essentially a one-stop shop. And that sounds too good to be true. We got the chance to talk to her and I had the chance to meet her at a conference a few weeks ago. And it sounds like you don't have to become an expert. There are people who can ease your way. But I was particularly interested in the different cultural attitudes. Yes, I found her site extremely interesting because the variety of products really spoke to maybe some cultural differences or healthcare differences that they face in Japan that we might not be as familiar with here in the States. Very interested to hear when she's going to bring on more products and uh, how she intends to grow. So let's take a listen. Welcome to the Business of the V. Hello, friends and colleagues. I'm Dr. Alyssa Dweck. And I'm Rachel Braunschirl. Each week, we bring you the most fascinating investors, inventors, entrepreneurs, academics, and healthcare practitioners who are making things happen in women's sexual and reproductive health. If you are a woman, know a woman, have a business, or care about your V health and wellness, fasten your seatbelts and listen in to another informative and inspiring episode. We are so happy today to have our guest, Amina Sugamato, who in addition to being the CEO and co-founder at Fermata, has a bunch of other interesting and relevant degrees. She has a doctorate in public health and a master's degree in global health policy. So a multiple threat. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for having me. So we were lucky enough to get to meet. You're across the world. We met in another place last week at a health conference in Tel Aviv. I would love you to share with our audience what you do and how you came to see a need and then had the vision to start your company. Yeah, so... I guess I was always in healthcare field, studying public health for a long time. I was in academia and I worked at a policy sector for a while afterwards. But um, at one point, I think in around 2016, I thought, oh, I kind of got bored in policy. Let me just jump into somewhere new. So I kind of worked at a VC world for two years. And while I was there, I came across a company from the U.S. called Modern Fertility. I think they were trying to raise Series A or Series B around for like seven, eight million at a time. And that's when I first found out that, ooh, in the West, something fun is happening around women's health. There are a lot of companies, all the investments are going in. So in 2019, just before we started, uh, just before COVID, what I did was I asked a few of my friends to join me to basically ask companies around the world and doing Femtech, you know, to send your product to Japan for free. This is way before I started my company. And I did an exhibition on Femtech in the middle of Tokyo. I emailed about 200 companies, about 30 companies to reply back and actually send their product for free. So we did like a little art exhibition. I sort of advertised it using my, just with my SNS, so just with my uh, circle of friends. But it turned out that over 120 people came. So we only had about 60 tickets, but it's all sold out. 
it was quite expensive. It was $25, the tickets. So I wanted to see how many people are actually interested in coming to see this product by paying money. And turned out that over 120 people came and I realized that, wow, there's so many people interested in learning more about what these products are and actually using them. So Formata started uh, from that experience in 2019, October. So around the time that COVID started, actually, as a space where people can actually get to know more about uh, different women's health and well-being products, not only in Japan, from abroad. And while I was doing that, I realized that there are a lot of companies from abroad that are interested in entering into Asian market, but simply difficult because language, culture, regulation barriers. So essentially now what we do is we help a non-Japanese company to enter into Japanese in the Asia market. We also have a branch in Singapore. So it's essentially a one-stop market entry opportunity that we provide. So that's the main thing we do, but we also provide consultancy to uh, Japanese big companies because they actually now are super interested in the women's health space. So I must ask, as a gynecologist, of course, and taking care of so many women in the menopause space, I really perused your site. So interesting. And I was curious, how do you decide what products to procure? And what I noticed very obviously missing in my eyes was something for hot flashes. Is this because that's not a big problem for the visitors to this website and or in the culture in Japan? Or is it uh, for another reason? I would say, though, to be 100% honest, at this moment, we haven't reached the point that we can actually import and bring in product like that we want. 90% of the product we want to bring in are not listed there. So there are many reasons, right? For like a menopause product, there are, there are not many, I would say, globally even compared to, let's say, menstrual products. So the companies that are interested in entering the Japanese market, racial-wise, is not as many as menstrual product, for example. And there's a regulation issues as well. A lot of these products are not even recognized as a medical device in Japan yet. So Japanese government has different sort of regulatory rules that even if it's approved in FDA, you have to go through PMDA, which is a Japanese version of FDA. So Formata has a license to be able to deal with medical device, quasi drugs, and also cosmetics. I think there are five products in pipeline now we're actually currently waiting for PMDA to give an approval, but that takes, you know, sometimes years. Uh, so I think mainly at the moment, unfortunately, we, the reality is that we cannot bring in the product we want. Okay. And yeah. here I'm relying on a study that's huge here in the U.S. called the Swan Study, which looked at women across the ages in regard to their menopausal symptoms. And it does seem that the African-American and Hispanic population tend to have the highest rates of disturbing right. motor symptoms and that the Asian population was lower on that list. So I just figured it was an academic decision on your part. So thanks for letting me know that. I guess it might have been. It was interesting when I was at this conference with Rachel, there was a study looking at that, comparing European not by race, but European uh, population and American and Japanese. And it turned out that Japanese have different sort of like symptoms, right? So we have more of a mental symptoms over menopause rather than physical. I think that was one of the findings of that research. And I shared that with my team. 
And then they were all surprised because we do. People are, you know, suffering from physical symptoms as well, but maybe not as much. But some of the um, sort of menopause product that we see from overseas, we do an exhibition here and people do get a chance to see if they come to Formata. And then we do see people, a lot of people are interested in it. It's just simply we just cannot bring it in because of regulation and all that. But yeah. So going back to the initial question, for the products that you are able to bring in from a regulatory perspective, how do you decide among the ones that you are exposed to which ones you want to bring in? Is there any medical oversight? Is there a testing panel? How do you figure out that you're going to bring in these three products, but not those? What is the process to evaluate how robust they are? There are three stages, I would say. One is, I mean, oftentimes either my people in my team or from the company side, or we, Formata has a community of users and they come to us and hey, this is a product uh, we want to bring in. We also have a database of about hundred, a thousand companies from around the world. And then and we're in communication about 800 of them. So that's, that's sort of like, um, source of companies that we work with to bring it in. So annually we decide uh, what companies to bring in or start the regulatory process. We have a partnership with, for example, Tokyo University Hospital, a local gynecologist, and once they are very, I would say, uh, scientific ones that I bring it over to them. We have a casual dinner once a month and I the doctors can get to sort of researchers get to sort of try the products and we get feedback from them. And based on that, we usually decide. But some of the products are not very scientific. We just basically decide on our own uh, within our pharmaceutical community that our users basically give us feedback. They get to use the, some of the product as well. Um, and every month we have a lunch scheduled for a community and they can come in and they can sort of give us feedback on a certain product that we want to bring in. Um, that, that's basically it. And then of course, when we sort of internally decide there's like a certain criteria we sort of pick, um, but we do get external sort of, uh, review and advice. What has been the most surprising experience you've had while you're trying to bring these companies? Are there enormous differences? It's a silly question. I'm, I'm sure there are enormous differences in what explodes in popularity um, in the Asian market than here. Not all of them. Some will be an absolute crossover. Are there particular areas where you see a huge cultural difference relative to the countries from which they're imported? So I don't know if this will be the right answer. The term femtech here in Japan is became a little quite popular. I will say the general public knows about it. Uh, it's been on every single magazine every year. The gov- I think it's a government. Or, I actually don't know whether if it's a government or one of the biggest marketing agency. They basically pick about five words that was most commonly used in that year. And Femtech was one of it. We had a prime minister election last year and four candidates came in. One of them was my friend, actually. And in one of the debate, she was asked like, or they were asked, which industry do you think will be the leading industry for Japan in the next five years? And she said femtech. So it's, it's, it's becoming a bit of a trend here. Now, I think I, I can probably say that Formata has sort of created that trend. And what happened was that 
about four years ago, right after the the first initial event that I told you about, that I brought about the 20 products and did an exhibition. After that, I started my company now as my office with my team member and some of our advisor investors. And we had all these tech products on our table and we were like, where do we start? Which product should we bring in? What sort of like movement should we make? And one of our investors had a really good point, a male investor actually. And he was like, tell me about your, uh, tell me about the menstrual product market in Japan. And I was like, it's complete opposite from the U.S. While 90% uses tampon in the U.S., 90% here uses pat and only 10% uses tampon. And he was like, so does that mean that, that people are not used to inserting something inside their vagina, right? Because pat is not insertable. And we were like, yeah, that's true. He was like, well, then why would Japanese people want to, if they're not used to putting inside something inside them every month, they're not going to put a sensor or device inside them. There'll be a, a huge sort of psychological barrier there. So you have to break that first. So what we start doing then is to bring in peer and underwear. Yeah, those have become so popular. I'm curious, do you have a uh, medical representation on your advisory board? Do you get input from doctors or healthcare providers? Yeah. Yeah. So we do have a, a local gynecologist and also we, we work with Tokyo University Hospital, which is one of the, I'll say, um, Tokyo University sort of gynecology department center because they are one of the largest medical field. But what I mean is, so like once, once we start bringing in, so we decided to bring in period underwear instead of all these devices. And that became a trend. All these Japanese sort of big um, retail companies, brands like clothing brand, underwear brand, they're all making them now. And once the public start using period underwear, they start to realize that, ooh, there's other options, more comfortable options rather than pads. Let me just explore more. That's sort of like the mental work, right? So they're now moving into menstrual cups and not a tampon. And so fortunately or unfortunately for the Japanese public where 90% of people here don't speak English, Femtech sort of became a word that represents a movement within the country that's a sort of, it's a right to learn about their body. Um, it's okay to talk about the taboo topic, rather than the actual tech side. So that's how the public sees. And I think it's good because um, that kind of shows that the market is growing. I think like every single clothes making companies are now trying to make underwear in a home because they see that it's the one uh, opportunity there. But yeah, I'm sort of hoping that to move towards more of the tech uh, in the next couple of years. But I think at least it's, there's a sign that the market is growing. So here's today's hot flash. It seems that Japan has one of the most generous paid leave policies in the world for both women and men. By law, Japanese men can take as much as a year's leave from work to give care and still be paid a substantial portion of their salaries. I am curious as well because, please correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't believe there's as much of a, a weight or obesity epidemic in Japan as there is maybe mm -hmm. in the U.S. And yet I still see many incontinence products on your site as well. And I don't mean for protection against incontinence, but rather for maintenance or prevention, like the uh, Kegel exercises, for example. Is there a market for that there as well? The answer is yes. Um, 
And I actually not not sort of specialist in this, but I guess obesity may be one of the main reason, but there may be other. Oh yeah, there are multiple risk factors, but obesity is one of them. And I feel like that's something that comes up in my office and in my practice all the time, have weight management as part of an overall program to help with incontinence. So I just wondered, I mean, part is genetic, part is childbirth, part is big babies or instrumented deliveries, I bet that did dawn on me. Yeah, so I guess um, what I what, what I see is that woman just the woman just gave uh, right after gave birth. Woman who's constantly working in an office with a computer sitting constantly uh, in thirties and forties. I think those are the ones that look for incontinence sort of products. I hear a lot of you know people maybe because I, I work for Mata, but sort of look for incontinence sort of products. Now that's an interesting one because we couldn't really say uh, these sort of uh, Kegel exercise products can con can prevent incontinence problem. We couldn't really say that up until last April because the within the pharmaceutical field lawyer here, they didn't recognize that as a medical device. Okay. They didn't let us link those two. We've been working with the government for the last two years now, and they released an update on the regulatory sort of uh, a pharmacographia law that we can actually say as a class one medical device, Kegel exercise products can be medical devices, prevents incontinence problems and so forth. Some of the products we have there, we're in the process of like registering those as a medical device. So we started off by targeting consumers from Mata, like th three years ago. And we show that still on the website, but about 95% of our income now comes to B2B business. Because one, we realized that so one is with the overseas products, right? That ones that were coming to Japan and we do from regulation to localization, to marketing, to branding. We also have a brick and mortar stores in Tokyo and Osaka and also branches in Singapore. So they can sort of, we sell their product there too. We also, um, realized that there's a huge market, uh, B2B as in Japanese corporates. And these are big, not multinational Japanese companies. And, and they're looking for one, either using these product and service as their benefits for the employee, but they just don't know how to, so they're looking for ways. And then to, they have a lot of the companies like Sony and Panasonic, they have technologies that they want to apply to a new field, but then they think that women's health might be a great opportunity, but they just don't know how to. So we do a consultancy on these two areas and the huge opportunities for non-Japanese product entering Japanese in Japanese market and then do B2B business. Interesting. How does it work? We have a lot of discussion always, but even more in the past several months about parental leave and however an organization defines reproductive care. What are the policies or the attitudes within Japan on those issues? Does everybody get parental leave? Do just the people who deliver or who are the primary caretaker get parental leave? And do those issues here, they seem to touch every part of our lives. The conversations become legislative and political and health related. How does that play out in Japanese society? as a benefit area or an area of interest for employers? Thank you. So I think, well, this is only my personal opinion, so it could be completely wrong in the really, but the way I see it, someone who grew up outside and living here for like the last couple of uh, years is Japanese are super glad 
following rules and making rules and they look at us that was happening outside of Japan and they're like, oh, we have to do this. And they make parental leave rules. I think mother can get up to one year of maternity leave. Mm. Oh, so in total, she gets about two years. And then father can get up too now. And then I think we're the first country, one of the first country who implemented period leave, as in like, once if you have a very heavy period, you can actually take days off and that won't be counted as using your holiday. I think Spain recently implemented that. We implemented about three years ago, four years ago. But it doesn't really mean that people actually take advantage of that. The rules are there, but the culture is different. People don't really take account of like how people benefit from these rules, good or bad. And so if you look at the period leave and the ones that implemented in Spain recently, I think it's Spain or Portugal. No, no one is using it now. Mm. Wow. Because 90% of the people, uh, management positions still in Japan are men. In fact, 95%. And younger women, they have to go report to their man, uh, male boss and say, hey, I have period every month. Like, who wants to do that? So the rules are there, but they never actually thought about how it would be sustained. And I think for parental leave, um, again, the similar thing, like, uh, obviously, women take advantage of the fact that they can take two years off. And they take two years off. There's also societal pressure that the, the woman has to stay with baby long, and as, as long as they should. So she ends up taking two years off and it becomes difficult to go back to work and end up leaving. Mm -hmm. For men's side, the father can get, what's the term in English? Um, Paternity leave? Well, as in like, I don't want to sort of say that marriage is only happening between men and women, but I'm just uh, taking an example. Of, oh, like, sp you know, like spousal leave. So the, the partner side that doesn't have, uh, didn't deliver the kid physically, and then it happens to be men in Japan quite often, they can take some days off. But again, like yeah, so culturally, they get a the pressure that they, they can't, so they don't. So the rules are there, but it doesn't really mean that everyone is sort of like takes advantage of that. So the policies are there and then we just still have an issue around implementation and the, and what that communicates. Yeah. And I guess, but COVID has changed a lot. I think sure. now that people can actually work from home and a lot of partners, I, the one that didn't deliver a baby noticed that there's a lot of work that one has to do at home as well. And it's okay to work from home. I heard that the culture is slowly changing, but from women's, from the mother's side, when I do a recruitment for my company, quite a lot of women apply to mine saying that they realize they want to go back to work after giving a baby as soon as she can after three months or four months. But she, she realized that there is either a lot of pressure or the way that company is structured is impossible to go back. So we do quite a lot of like applicants saying that she wants to work, but not in the current company because so you're looking for an opportunity that she can well work in a flexible sort of uh, environment. I guess the women start to realize that it's okay to work. So I think something is changing in Japan after COVID, I would say. Interesting. Very interesting. If there's one thing, a piece of advice you want to give to physicians who are developing companies or products or entrepreneurs, what should they keep in mind when they decide if and when they want to expand into the Asian market? And I know that's a big question and it's not a simple answer, 
But are there a couple of watchouts or things that you must do in order to be able to turn this idea into a reality if you're a U.S. company or a company from another part of the world that wants to enter this market? Well, I think this applies to all the health tech companies. When I was working at a VC firm um, right after my uh, studies, and I was basically helping investors to look into any policy or regulation barriers for a health tech companies to come into Japanese market. And, and it's, it's one of the very thing, important things to consider, but unfortunately, uh, oftentimes is often forgotten until the point that they actually need to comply. So I would say if it's American company enter into Asian market and regulations, uh, whether if it's a medical device or not, it's, it's something that you might want to check it first, because if the idea of, I uh, just gave an example of how pelvic floor exercise uh, up until recently wasn't considered as medical device. What I mean by that is even if you have a certain marketing term that you want to use, it's, it's prevents incontinence, even if it did. In scientific world, if the law or regulation is not being updated to that point, you can't say that. So there's no way that you can act. You can only say that it's for Kegel exercise. You can't really say, what is this for? So if there's certain sort of marketing terms that you want to use or the effects of the product, you might want to make it sort of clear and then find out what does it mean in within the Japanese or Asian regulatory framework. Oftentimes in Southeast Asia, if you have FDA approval, you may be able to skip the, all the regulatory process because they follow the FDA guideline, but you also want to check that. There's another thing, important thing, aside from the regulation is uh, health systems. So I see that a lot of American companies come to the agent market saying like, this actually saves the cost of whatever insurance company, but we have a national health insurance where every single Japanese is insured. And depending on your income, but uh, 30% to, to 10% a co-payment system. And if your payment, monthly payments of in medicine, healthcare goes above $500 approximately, that's the sort of top. So the rest the government pays. So we're not really used and the dentist is also included. So we're the country that even if you have a fever or like a bit of a headache or even if you have temperature, we just end up going to nearby clinic. It's a completely different system than the US. There's no sort of like, people don't really think here how to save medical costs, for example. You know, uh, rather than using a device, expensive device for incontinence problem, it might be safer and faster to go to a doctor nearby and they'll give you a treatment for really cheap. I wouldn't say cheap, but not as expensive, I would say in the U.S. So the health is a complete difference. So even when you're thinking about the business sort of uh, model, um, it's often difficult to bring in exactly the same model as it works in the U.S. And I think those, so those are two things that keep in mind before entering into Interesting. And we could probably take a little bit of a lesson here in the U.S. because we do have a little bit of a broken system. So thank you for that. <laughs> Thank you so much. This was very interesting. I'm uh, going to watch and see your platform grow because I'm sure there'll be Thank more you. products as time comes along. Thank you. We're also hosting, so every year, so the first initial event that we hosted in September, that kind of evolved into something big and we call it Femtech Fest in every October. Uh, this year, 14, 15, 16, 
Uh, we host an events exhibition in Roppongi. Last year, we had over 1,500 people and over 150 products from 26 countries, six regions all over the world. And this year, we're expecting to have over 3,000 people and 200 products. We also have invited companies from around the world, like CEO of uh, well-known femtech companies, and it's going to be a big party. So if any of the listeners are interested in attending or having uh, your product participated, it's all free for participants. It's, it's free to participate for femtech companies. So please send me an email. <laughs> Terrific. Thank you so much. And thanks for starting your day so early. We have a 12-hour right. time difference, so we really appreciate it because we wanted to get you on the show and share what you're doing with people. So Thank have you. a great day and many, many thanks. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Don't forget, subscribe to our podcast at businessofthev.com for the latest trends and trendsetters in women's health and business.